This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Cassie McCullough and welcome to another of our season of Best of the Festivals, featuring sessions from this year's Sydney Writers' Festival. This morning, words on show, writing for performance. Featuring a stellar panel, here's author Maeve Marsden to introduce them. David Williamson is one of Australia's best known and most widely performed playwrights and a leading screenwriter. Over a span of 50 years, he's written more than 50 plays performed internationally, over 20 films and television series, and he's won countless awards. In 2021, David released his memoir, Home Truths. Omar Musa is a Bornean Australian author, visual artist and poet from Queanbeyan. He's released four books of poetry for hip hop records and his debut novel, Here Come the Dogs, was long listed for the International Dublin Literary Award and the Miles Franklin Award. He was named one of Sydney Morning Herald's Young Novelists of the Year in 2015 and his one-man play, Since Ali Died, won Best Cabaret Show at the Sydney Theatre Awards in 2018. Finally, Maxine Beniba-Clark is the award-winning author of more than nine books for adults and children, including the critically acclaimed short fiction collection Foreign Soil, memoir The Hate Race, Victoria Premier's award-winning poetry collection, we'll get there, Carrying the World, and the Boston Globe Horn Prize winning picture book The Patchwork Bike. She's the editor of Best Australian Stories 2017 and Growing Up African in Australia. Her most recent poetry collection is How Decent Folks Behave. Give him a round of applause. So, I'd like to start today by asking each of our wonderful panellists how much you think about audience when you write, and if you do think about us or them, who you think your audience is. Omar? I don't know who my audience is. Um, I, I like to write stuff that operates on a number of levels that, so that hopefully it's, it's open enough that a whole range of people of different backgrounds can engage with it. Um, I like to think of it a little bit like... Um, an iPhone with a user-friendly interface and a complicated operating system. Um, but I think, about, I think about performance a lot because I come from a, um, I do come from a theatrical family. Um, my mother was a theatre historian uh, and a, an arts journalist. And my dad was an actor and a poet in Malaysia from Borneo and also a romance radio DJ. And so um, <laughs> my... Um, <laughs> my uh, and that was how he got into the theatre, actually, because he was working on community radio in, in Borneo and a guy from the mainland was walking past a radio and heard this really beautiful, deep voice and was like, I need to find out who owns that voice and went and found my father and then offered him a scholarship to, to go to Penang in the mainland of Malaysia and um, where my mum was, was lecturing and, and was actually um, directing the first ever Malay, Malaysian language version of Hamlet by Shakespeare. And they were trying to audition for the, for the leading role and they couldn't find the right person until this, you know, handsome Bornean guy walked in. And so, yeah, my dad was the first Malaysian Hamlet as well. I love that so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and so, like, growing up, um, my parents were both true believers in the arts and in, and in poetry and that poetry was at its best when it was performed. My dad always said that. Um, and so when it came to writing my own poetry, my, my dad always encouraged me and helped me actually rehearse my first poems that I would do on the stage. And so I, I realised that by 
by saying the words out loud, it helped shape them even if it was just for the page. Um, you know, it, the, the awkward phrasing made itself clear and everything. And so again, it could operate on those different, different levels. Maxine, do you think about your audience? Yeah, I think I do think about audience quite a lot. Um, I think probably because I write across so many forms. Um, but often I think who I think my audience is is interrogated. You know, I write picture books as well as work for adults and often I'll have adults coming to buy the picture books or, you know, some work that I have on school syllabuses that weren't written for kids that are now being read by 17-year-olds. So I think even though I'm thinking about who's going to receive it and how they're going to be digesting the work, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's kind of getting to those people or putting those limits around it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing with audiences. I always feel when I've got a handle on who my audience is or how audiences will behave, something shifts again. I mean, even recently, the pandemic has changed kind of audience appetites and behaviour um, once more. David, who's your audience, apart from quite large? <laughs> yeah, audience um, is vital, Maeve. Um, uh, in fact, I wanted to tell stories. I didn't know what form quite I wanted to do it as a young man. I tried to write novels, I tried, I wrote reams and reams of turgid prose and one night I was in the theatre and suddenly there was a performance of an Arthur Miller play, play um, Incident at Vichy I think it was and, um, and I was grabbed by that interaction between the live actors and the audience. They, they were, you could hear the little pin drop um, and the, the message that those actors were giving to that audience was so important to them, uh, and it just grabbed me. I thought, this is what I want to do. I'm not schizophrenic, but a voice in my head said, forget the novels, this is what you should be doing. And uh, so originally, it's that bond between the actors and audience that really sucked me into theatre and made me want to write, made me want, want to create something that would do to an audience what I saw happening that night and that, that I became addicted to that thing. If you can create something that works with an audience, there's no other buzz like it for a, uh, a writer for, for performance. And once you started getting the opportunity to sit in an audience listening to your work, did that change your relationship? Did you start as you kind of absorbed their energy and watched them react? Did it change the relationship to your writing and to them the more you witnessed audiences witnessing your work? Yes, I think it does. Um, you, you do learn. You, you do learn from the audiences. Um, I think my very first plays um, were too didactic, um, too hectoring, too lecturing the audiences in the small theatre at Carlton, and I watched the audience <laughs> fall asleep or walk out. And I thought, I think that's not the thing to do. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a learning experience early on, but the audience does, uh, does teach you a lot. In fact, in theatre, the most, the most tense moment of theatre is when you have your first audience, the, um, the, the first preview. You, you're working through four or five weeks of rehearsal. The actors have done, done the lines thousands of times. They think there can't be anything interesting or funny in them anymore. They lose faith in the play. You lose faith in the play then suddenly you've got your first preview audience and boom, we hope. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's not, but if it's boom and you can feel lift off, if you can feel that connection between your story, those actors and that audience, that's, that's what you do it for. 
magic. Maxine, you've spoken about your career being born on the stage. You think you called slam poetry a tiny revolution. Um, can you tell us about that, how you found an audience through performers when publishers weren't as receptive as they perhaps should have been? Yeah, um, I started performing spoken word, I think probably for seven or eight years, was exclusively performing work and and often slamming against Mr Musa here in Poetry Slam and... Who won? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're probably even. Um, and yeah, similar to what David says in, in Poetry Slam, you know, we're actually getting voted on, right? So it's not just kind of seeing the audience fall asleep, it's seeing the audience, you know, <laughs> vote you off the stage, you know? So, you know, I often say that was the kind of most brutal editing ground that you can ever, you know, as a poet, that you can ever kind of face. So I think, um, yeah, for me, that it was partly because um, I was, it was difficult to get work published Elsewhere, I was sending poetry away and wasn't getting published, so I just kind of stopped. And also, similar to Omar, my mum was an actress. Hi, mum. <laughs> um, and so, you know, when I was a kid, I was always forced to read lines, you know. <laughs> it's like if you're a landscaper, you're forced to dig holes. I was forced to read, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird over and over and over so she could learn her lines. So, you know, that kind of, I guess, tuned my ear towards performance. And also, you know, my dad was a mad record nut. So, you know, we always had music playing in our home. So I think those two forms of kind of spoken word, along with just finding it really difficult to get published as at the time a young black woman in Australia, you know, people just weren't receptive to the kind of work I was making. And so the stage was kind of a democratic space. There was always open mic, you know, you always knew you would get two minutes no matter what. And so that's what I gravitated towards. And as a poet, when you're writing now, because you are writing sometimes for performance and often for print, do you write the words to be read aloud still or, or are they structures on a page? Do you hear them in your head? Like I'm interested in the kind of internal machinations of how the words flow out of you or, just, or sit inside you when you're writing. Yeah, I, everything I write is made to be read aloud and I think there's probably nothing I've written that I have not read aloud. There's, I mean, occasionally there'll be a poem that kind of is almost like a concrete poem. That would be the only exception, but it'd be, you know, one in a thousand. Um, so even when I'm writing for the page, I'm constantly, when I'm editing it, reading it aloud. And I think that's also probably why I gravitated towards picture books. Um, you know, all of my picture books are poems and it's kind of, that's the one thing that you know, everyone is doing spoken word with their children at night. <laughs> you know, it's just in a, in a different form. Um, so, yeah, for me, the sound of what, what you know, what things sound like. Um, and also coming from the West Indies where there's a really strong, you know, my parents were born in the West Indies, that oral tradition, I think, is just something that's always just kind of, um, you know, hovering over everything, whether it's, you know, dub poets and reggae music and things like that. What about you, Omar? Do you hear the words... It's weird because, you know, I work in hip-hop as well and with spoken word, but actually it, it always forms in my brain as an image first or almost like a, a vision that I then try and almost reverse engineer in, into words. Um, so it's maybe no surprise that I ended up going into visual art with the woodcuts and everything and directly accessing uh, the, the image. Uh, so, no, I always see kind of, yeah, a burning picture or vision in my head and then I'm trying to translate it. Um, so it doesn't, yeah, it, it needs to go through that process first. David, do you hear and see your plays? What are you, as you're writing, are all the characters in there having a chat? 
Oh, yes. I, I, <laughs> I hear in my head all right. Um, no, I really do. Uh, the dialogue does flow through my brain before it hits the page. And my dialogue is often said to be naturalistic, but it isn't. Uh, it's, it's quite musical. Uh, when I work it out, um, I can hear the rhythms in my head. They're complex rhythms. And when I feel it's flowing, those rhythms are flowing, and out it comes. And when the actors do the, the plays, the directors invariably say, don't paraphrase. It will not work. Just go with the lines, go with the poetry. Um, and when they get it, um, it is an appearance of naturalism, how people really speak, but it's actually subtly quite different. It's quite musical. Um, most drama writing has polyrhythms and musical rhythms to it um, that people take as normal, but, but, but it's, it, it's not. And actors often uh, found, had a habit of paraphrasing because they did a lot of television where the, where the dialogue is a lot more re realistic or naturalistic and it just stumbled. But yes, I heard it in my head. I let it flow through my head, put it on the page. At some stage of my career, I tried acting it out loud. <laughs> but then my daughter had the, <laughs> the room next door and she said, Dad, I'm glad professional actors are doing your work. <laughs> so, but comedy relies on that musical rhythm as well. If somebody paraphrases, the, the, the beat of the joke isn't going to land. It's poetry, but it's also for humour to work. Oh, yes. It, it needs a syllable count often to land. Yes. And you're at comedy, obviously. So, yeah. Well, the great comedians say you, you do one, two, and you land it on three. I, I, I don't quite formulise it like that, but there is a certain um, structural rhythm to good stage writing. Can I just add, yeah. I, that's interesting you say that because I often took my rhythm from, it was related to religion because, you know, so I've mentioned my dad now before, but he then became a religious leader. Um, and I was raised uh, very religious as a Muslim boy, and so I'd watch the preachers all the time, and the, and, the, and the preachers performed in particular way, and that rule of three was one that they always used. They would always sort of land on th or repeat something three times. And then, you know, when I was looking for Muslim role models, like I'd, as a young boy, my first one was Muhammad Ali, because we didn't see, there weren't any Muslim people on TV in Australia at the time, so I had to look further afield, and, and the black Muslims um, were very, very appealing to me, and so um, I would, I remember I taped a, um, a VHS of this doco on SBS um, about um, Malcolm X, and, and, um, and at the end of it, there was a little section on hip-hop, and that was how I found out about hip-hop, because it had been so influenced, public enemy and everything. And I would just watch it again and again, religiously, <laughs> the Malcolm X and the way he delivered speeches. And so when it came to doing my own performances, I wanted to be like him and like Louis Farrakhan. That's, you know, he's probably very controversial now, uh, Louis Farrakhan. But I, would, I wanted to perform like them because I just was amazed at the evangelical way they could, with just their voice alone, move a whole crowd and raise them to some level of ecstatic euphoria. And I mean, and you make music as well now. And so do you find when you're performing music versus poetry that changes the energy of the crowd? Like what, how do you experience that moment when there's a band behind you versus when it's your voice alone? Mm. It's interesting because there's more of a kind of 
there's maybe more parameters when the music's there and you have to respond to that. Um, and, it, and I do find it's, it's interesting. Have, have you had the difficulty of performing poetry to an audience who doesn't speak English? Because I've had that a few times where it's like you can only get a certain way with your flow and your um, presence and stuff, but then, um, you know, you lose them because I can't understand what you're saying. And so I feel lucky sometimes that I can then put the music on and it sort of goes across borders a little bit more. While I'm with you, if you are asked kind of what form you write, how do you define it? Do you say poetry or do you list all the forms you use? Yeah, I try not to think about it too much because it feels so restrictive. I'm and I don't know why we have to well, sort we of don't. say that, yeah. Well, no, I'm thinking about it because your work since Ali died landed in the cabaret category. And yeah, that was funny. Well, so, so I make cabaret and at the time I saw your show and we didn't know each other and I went around ranting to everybody that it was cabaret. And I, because cabaret to me is relationship to audience, it's rhythm, it's music, it's direct address, it's playing yourself or some version of yourself. And I was like, the only reason no one's calling this cabaret is because Omar's not either a white gay guy or a high femme woman and that we've defined this genre by who does it rather than the form and so I wondered what your response was to that when your work landed in a a genre you may not have chosen for yourself. I thought it was really cool and you know yeah (laughs) why why not like like I say like I I like the fact that these unexpected things can can occur and that I write it in a manner that it can be read in a whole bunch of different ways and even with that show actually it was interesting like you know, a lot of young people of colour and young Muslim people would come to it and, and say that it felt re- reflective of their experience. So in some way, my work had become some type of mirror, maybe. And, but then there were, like a lot, there were definitely a lot of um, older white audience members who said that it had provided some type of window or portal into an experience that they hadn't had direct access to. So it was exactly the same words and the same performance, but it was just read in these completely different ways, which I thought was really, really cool. On Radio National Summer, this is a session from the Sydney Writers' Festival on writing for performance. Featuring playwright David Williamson, performer and author Omar Musa, and author Maxine Beniba-Clark. Let's head back in with Chair Maeve Marsden. David, your work has been celebrated for its social and political commentary throughout your career. But as you've reflected in your memoir, Australia and Australian theatre and audiences have changed immensely in the decades that you've been writing. How does it feel now to read or watch your earlier work? Uh, the revivals usually, uh, I, I get quite thrilled when they do a, a revival. Sure, it's set in a time and a place, and it's true to that time and place, and society has moved on, but it's a historical record of how we were at that time, or how my tribe was. Um, I'm, I'm uh, the sort of fossil on the panel here. I'm a near-dead white male. Uh, uh, um, so my stuff was always to my particular tribe, and I make no apologies for that. It was Anglo-Celtic, middle-class whites. It's what I knew. It's what I grew up with. It's what I wrote about. But um, there's been a whole blossoming of new identities and new uh, new characters and new subcultures and new tribes on stage, which is... Um, made our oeuvre a lot richer, and I'm very happy about that. But I'm also happy that my tribe still comes to the theatre in numbers. (laughs) So, yeah, they're still coming. 
So, so when you're sitting in the audience and watching it, does and I suppose you've been going back over your work for your memoir and and thinking reflectively in a particular way. Did the process of writing memoir rather than theatre shift your relationship to that work? It made me think about where the plays came from. What was their genesis? Uh, why were they written at that time? What was Australia like at the time? So that my memoir is as much a story of 80 years of change in Australia as it is about my plays, because my plays changed in as much as, yeah, they were still about Anglo-Celtic, white middle-class people, but um, they changed too. Um, and so uh, it was fascinating. I felt I'm doing a social study of my country as it went through 80 years of really rapid change. And did you find, sorry, while I'm here with you, did you find the process of writing memoir rather than theatre challenging? Like it's, it's writing for print in that way is such a different form. Um, did you enjoy the shift to a, a single voice? <laughs> I did, yeah. I, I sort of, um, in drama, everything is in the dialogue and everything that you haven't got in the dialogue has to be in the subtext and exposition is verboten, it's, uh, you shouldn't do it uh, in, in theatre. And suddenly I was allowed <laughs> to have a voice, yeah, say, like, this is detail, me. Detail, yeah, detail. <laughs> I mean, I did have a bit of a problem because my wife is a very fine prose writer and she was looking at this change of genre and mm, I'm not sure about this, but she was won over in the end, I think. Maxine, your latest poetry collection, How Decent Folk Behave, opens with a Nina Simone quote, an artist's duty, as far as I'm concerned, is to reflect the times. I was reading the poetry that you've written in it about bushfires and lockdown and Zoom, and somehow the last couple of years feel like they were both endless and a week. And I was like, didn't that just happen? How has Maxine had time to write a book? Um, I'd love to know why you chose that quote and how it feels to comment on world events through poetry as those events are unfolding. Yeah, I think to me that quote really encapsulates, um, yeah, just what I see as my job as a poet is to leave some kind of record, um, which doesn't mean to say that it's always directly relating to what's happening, you know, at the time. I feel like this is probably my most, my fastest book. I was really betting on the pandemic lasting, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, it, it's felt, um, it very much felt like having, you know, it's time where you can't go out and read poetry to each other, you can't perform, all the theatres were closed. So this almost felt like having those conversations that I would have been having in that space if I was on panels and, but it was kind of like I was having them, you know, with myself at the kitchen table and my, my you know, pencil and paper. Um, and so, yeah, the struggle of finding time to write, but also just, you know, in a way, the weird quietness of not having all of those busy things that you normally do. Um, and also that 24-hour news cycle, it's like, what am I going to write about? That's what I'm going to write about. So much fodder, <laughs> you know? so much yeah, time exactly. to reflect on. It's all right there, yeah. Omar, what impact did the kind of, and I won't spend too long on the COVID stuff, but what impact did lockdown and that lo loss of performance spaces have on your writing? Well, I'd made the decision before COVID even hit to quit writing and performing because I'd kind of got to this place that I think many of us come to where we hate this thing that we're, that's supposed to be our life passion. It's a really confronting thing. Um, and so I'd quit 
Uh, I took the first few months as an opportunity to go back to study. I went to um, I went to TAFE in Canberra and studied horticulture. So I was actually just catching <laughs> catching three buses from Queanbeyan across the other side of bloody Canberra in my high vis and in the freezing cold and digging and planting and propagating things and growing and 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 uh, and then that became in a weird way because I couldn't help myself. A, a sort of a metaphor for some type of personal regeneration as well. And it was, it was pretty funny, you know, because we had to do this elective and it was on like pitching plants um, for a nursery, like if you worked for a nursery and pitching into an apartment block or something and you'd go, oh, well, you know, it's um, 1.5 metres in width, it's an evergreen, this and that, you know. And then I couldn't help, and I was just like in front of the class and I was like, and, and it has a weeping habit, like a... a <laughs> a widow's veil, and, and then, they were all looking at me like, who the fuck is this guy, you know? And, and so, like, after... So, um, yeah, I, it taught me who I was and also who I wasn't, because as soon as it started getting vaguely scientific with the pH levels and that in the soil, I was just like, I'm out of here. And I want to write, and so I came back to poetry and performing, and suddenly, yeah, this book came out of nowhere that I just did, had not planned on at all, um, and I started, um, yeah, it suddenly became um, my, my page, instead of being this um, blank sort of no man's land, became fecund with ideas and, and fertile like the garden. And, and I, um, yeah, started creating again. Live performance is fundamentally collaborative. Even, even um, the sort of the solitary art of writing a poem, you know, in a slam poetry, they're clicking to tell you if you've done well. And as you say, they're voting. Um, and in theatre, even more so a band supporting a musician, all our work relies on um, these teams. David, as a writer of plays, you only have so much control over what makes it in front of an audience. And you gave us a sense earlier of when people dare to paraphrase. Um, how do you grapple with that element of theatre, the, the writer's work going on to be interpreted by a director and actors and creatives before it's received? Have you ever been just mortified? Oh, no, no, maybe I find, the whole, I find the whole process tense, but very exciting because it is collaborative. Uh, the very first person who reads one of my, the first draft of my players, my dear wife, who um, retreats to a study, and that's the most tense time in my life. <laughs> well, she's, that, and she emerges from her study either with tears in her eyes, which means it's going to be a hit, uh, or with a grim look on her face, and I think, oh, here comes another 15 drafts. Um, so then it goes to the director who has their take on, and I listened carefully because these, these people are smart, and then it goes, I've been lucky in the last half of my career, I've been given a, um, a reading with, a, with the cast uh, six weeks, eight weeks out from rehearsal, so they can all talk about it to me, to my face, uh, they can all give me their misgivings if they have them, uh, and then I've got another couple of months to go back and absorb what they've, they've told me. Sometimes I think it's right, sometimes it's wrong, but it's very valuable. And then e even there can be some tinkering during the, the, the previews. If you've got five or six or seven previews before opening night and you find some really dead spots that the audience are really turning off, then you've got time to do a bit of tinkering. Not much, you've got to do most of it in the rehearsal room or before the rehearsal room. But certainly, yeah, I value that, um, uh, that meeting of minds that's necessary in theatre. 
the reading, the opportunity to have a reading. I've been working on a play myself and we finally had a reading with actors and I had written a monologue that I thought was genius. And it was the deadest moment in the room and everything just kind of, you could feel people's faces melting off with boredom and that scene got cut. But yeah, the reading, the reading with actors prior is just gold. Maxine, you've dabbled in writing for theatre and you told me earlier and I didn't tell you I'd bring it up on the microphone that you were shocked by the collaborative element and that it was a bit much. Yeah, I've been writing a play for probably five or six years now. <laughs> um, I was approached to write an adaptation of my memoir, The Hate Race, um, by Malthouse in conjunction with Griffin Theatre and I don't know if it'll ever be put on. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it shocked me. You know, I think as a... I mean, I'm used to collaborating with illustrators or with editors or that aspect, but it really is pretty much that vision that you live with and you edit yourself and you might get feedback, but it's kind of you alone in a room with a computer. And I don't think I'd really thought through that element of, like, being in a room with three other people and a whiteboard. And, and also, like, the weird, like... <laughs> the kind of being John Malkovichness of, you know, people going, I just don't think Maxine would do that. You know? <laughs> and you're kind of going, what, what, what are you talking about? It happened, you know. <laughs> so I think it was the added element of just this surreal, you know, experience of your life literally changing because it doesn't fit a narrative arc or something <laughs> like that. And, and, you know, like I think, you know, after five or six years, it's in okay shape. But, you know, I often say, you know, it feels like to me writing is like a, you know, you have a toolbox of skills and you decide, you know, these are the skills, I'm, the tools I'm going to take out for a picture book or whatever. And it was like, you know, I said, yeah, sure, I'll write a play. And they gave me the toolbox and there was two tools in there. You know, that aspect that David's talking about of actually being able to kind of, you know, describe the scenery or, you know, what, how people are feeling that you can do in prose or in a poem is suddenly just taken away and you have, you kind of, you know, feels like writing with one hand tied behind your back. Um, and so, that, yeah, it was a real learning curve. I think definitely my, my writing skills are better for it. I don't know if the Australian stage will be better for it, but we'll see. <laughs> Well, because David, you've always, um, you've based characters on people in your real life, but you've had the advantage of fiction rather than placing yourself literally into the page like Maxine's doing. Are we going to get a theatrical adaptation of your memoir? <laughs> too painful. David would never no, do that. No, too painful. I, I had, my, had Kristen looking at it with eagle eyes and saying, be truthful, be truthful about your misgivings and mm. misbehaviours. It's yes, it's uh, a little more honest than it would have been without her. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I, I don't want to do that. But um, it, uh, yeah, the, um, the I, I learned early that, that drama is a very spare form. Um, if you, if you go to King Lear, uh, the start of King Lear, Shakespeare never wasted time. He was off and running. He, he, right, three daughters, I'm going to split up my kingdom and you've got to tell me how wonderful I am and then I'll give it to you. Daughter one, Goneril, Regan, yeah, you're wonderful dad. Oh, look, you're just as wonderful as you should be. Right, you don't get any boom. Off goes the drama. Uh, within a page or two, the dramatic situation is up and running and, uh, and so uh, I learned very early... Um, Yes, I do base on real life for the simple reason I started imitating other playwrights and it never worked. 
And I, then I did a gritty little piece about a mining town where I'd actually worked as a student in vacation, and it was a tough, tough town. And I created the characters that I'd known there, and it worked on stage. And I suddenly thought, well, if you're, if you're writing, there are only two real sources of, of information, material you can write about, your own life, your own experiences, your own perceptions of those experiences, or what is sometimes called your imagination. Now, imagination is all too often subconsciously purloining the work of previous writers and you don't know you're doing it <laughs> because truly original thought is very, very rare. So often when you think you're using your imagination, you're using other writers. So I never trusted um, that source. I always felt comfortable from then on when I was actually knowing that I'd seen, heard or believed that had happened. Mm. Omar, on collaboration, you had an interesting take the other day and I was asking about you um, adding visual arts and doing the wood carving that you've done in your latest book, Killanova, and you said that collaboration was part of what reignited your interest in writing. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think because over the years I'd come to believe in this idea that the, the writer or the poet was kind of like this solitary warrior or the samurai kind of wandering alone through the landscape and you know I even you know I was asked to do one of those things probably about 10 years ago it was like 10 pieces of advice for a young writer and I literally said be the dictator of your own art you know there was I was I can't believe I mean, I've said some really mortifying things in public before <laughs> like it's just, so embarrassing but you know I was just basically I was saying you know good art is not created by democratic referendum and good consensus you know it's like and I think I, I saw it as like you know, imposing my ideas on the page in that manner or on the audience through force of uh, charisma and sheer dint of declaration, you know, like, and, uh, but then uh, that was starting, it felt like that attitude was starting to erode me and erode my practice and, and I started to believe that with each piece of myself that I put out into the world, I was diminishing and I was, like, pieces of me were falling away until the bigger my legacy became, the less of me as an actual human would be left and there would just be nothing but thin air kind of thing. And so I went back to, I was back in Borneo and I was having a bit of a dark night of the soul and... Um, and I was hanging out with a whole bunch of the punk rockers and environmental activists, and they all use these woodcut prints to do their posters that are um, protesting the logging industry or government corruption. And oftentimes they'll do these huge, these large-scale works, and there'll be about eight to ten of them working on them at the same time. And then they'll all print it together by pressing the the cloth that's to, to the to the wood block that's been rolled with ink, and they'll press it with their feet all together, and then and then sign it with the, the, the name of the collective, not the individual names of the artist. And it's sort of linked in with this older tradition of people sitting around the woven mat all on the ground, exchanging ideas, yarning, cross-pollinating, um, because before colonization, there was no such thing as a table in Borneo. And so the table became a, a symbol full of dark power and the imposition of power through administration, sometimes that is even more violent than the cannon or the gun, you know. And so I took inspiration from these people who in turn were taking inspiration from an older pre-colonial form of egalitarian sharing and collaboration. Um, and I found that um, that 
that emboldened me and um, and I then brought that out of my visual art into poetry and in the new book there's a couple of collaborative poems which is something I never would have done before because I would have always just thought oh it's just you know a poem is for the individual writer to create. I want to refer to um, a passage in How Decent Folk Behave and you'll have to excuse me reading out a slam poet's words back to them um, but Maxime writes art is the closest one can get to God and in fact, exactly what it means to have a soul. Art is at the heart of all that we are, the markings on the wall and who walked here and everything that came before. There's an election tomorrow. <laughs> Maxine, as an artist, are you feeling hopeful? It's difficult to think that after the last three years, things might not change. You know, I feel like everybody, every, almost every artist I know is, you know, is just, please <laughs> let things change um, and I think you know it's that sense of you know I go on in that poem to talk about the fact that you know art it does keep old people out of nursing homes and it brings money into the economy and it keeps kids in schools and you know all of these things are kind of completely interlinked um, and I feel like until you know, we as a society can acknowledge that there are all these things that we assume don't have a kind of net value or, you know, cap in capitalistic terms. Um, they exist in isolation from everything else that's going wrong. Um, you know, until that changes, I think, you know, we're in a, in a very dark place. So I'm hopeful because I always have hope, but I'm bracing myself also. We're listening to a session from this year's Sydney Writers' Festival on writing for performance here on Radio National Summer. With chair Maeve Marsden, our playwright David Williamson, performer and author Omar Musa, and author Maxine Beniba-Clark. Now, time to hear some questions from the audience. How do you avoid being a director of your own play when you're writing it? And how difficult is it to avoid stage directions aside from exit stage left? An excellent question. David. I found it's, it's best to be sparse with stage directions, particularly directions to actors. If you put, um, uh, if you put Fred deeply angry and then a, a, a line, the actor playing Fred will do everything possible not to be deeply angry uh, uh, to show that they're, you know, so um, you've got to be prepared for the fact that there'll be a lot of interpretation and different productions will give different interpretations uh, but um, the rhythms of the language do keep the play on course because they have to do those uh, the difference between stage and film and I've done a lot of film writing is that Film actors, film directors um, disregard the power of writers to a large extent. Ever since the French invented the auteur theory, uh, everyone else thinks they've written the, f the film but the, uh, but the writer. But on stage, the great plus is, thanks to Shakespeare, they revere, or not quite revere, but they, they stick to your words. And so, uh, so there's a certain consistency, even though there's different interpretations. I think for me, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a, it feels ridiculous commenting after David, I'm obviously <laughs> a baby playwright, um, but um, 
it, you know, the revelation came when working with an, an actor, you know. Um, we had an, an actor named, by the name of Zara Newman, who's just absolutely incredible, who we were workshopping with and just kind of seeing her take the text and do with it much more amazing things than my stage directions, you know, um, and just kind of realising, okay, someone needs to take this and embody it and just make it their own. I think those are the, the moments where I go, oh, okay, collaboration is good, you know. <laughs> as, a as a baby playwright, I knew yeah. my stage directions too much when everybody in the reading group laughed at how many stage directions I'd written. They were like, this is too much, this is too much. Omar? I mean, I'm a baby theatre maker as well because yeah. I've just I've only done two pieces. The one was the one man play. Worked very closely with um, Anthea Williams over at um, Griffin Theatre, um, and so I, I've just always been open in these situations to a lot of advice and guidance um, because I know how little I know. And then the last last year, I was working with Sydney Theatre Company on developing this rough draft um, with with Courtney Stewart, and and I found it amazing. Uh, and very generative creatively to watch the actors and, to, and when the director got them to act out scenes uh, non-verbally, for instance. I know it's, it probably sounds very basic to a theatre maker, but to a poet who was always getting bogged down in the, on the line-by-line -line basis. And that is all, always a really huge challenge for me because I do love words so much. Um, but then it can just, yeah, it can really weigh down the action of prose and theatre I've since found out. And so, um, yeah, I'm just, I try to stay as humble as I can and, and um, take the directions of, of people who know more about what they're doing. I, I, you do get still different interpretations that can surprise you as a writer. You must, uh, you must feel that too. You, as you were saying, uh, Maxine, um, often I'm in the audience watching my play and a lot of the audience is watching me just laughing at his own jokes, you know. <laughs> What an egotist. And, I, I, and they come up to me in the forum and say, oh, I saw you, I caught you laughing at your own jokes. And I said, no, 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 no. I was laughing at the inventiveness of actors who bought something new that I wasn't expecting. Well, that's my, you know, I, I try and get it. <laughs> I'm interested to know, uh, and this follows on a little bit from the last question, when you write something, do you write it for a space? I've, I've seen Omar's play at Griffin and, and the intimacy of that I'm not sure works in a bigger theatre. And, and I just wonder, when you write it, do you think about the space you're writing it for? Omar? Yeah, sometimes I do, you know. I mean, oftentimes, again, I want it to work on several levels um, so that it could be as intimate as a discussion with one person or work in, like, a stadium because I was influenced by a certain type of... Um, declarative Southeast Asian poetry that was often done at political rallies um, in, in front of a lot of people and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, for instance, there was a poem that I think a lot of kids study um, that I did at the Sydney Opera House and I knew I was going to do it on the main stage of the Sydney Opera House. So I was trying to create, like Kanye West used to talk about making stadium rap and I thought of it as like stadium poetry, you know. I, I knew that I would use all of those skills that I'd learned off the, the Malcolm X's and everything to make it something a bit larger than life and have a grandiosity to it that wasn't as as sort of... Um, intimate as a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So yeah, I, def I definitely do. Uh, but my, my hope is that at its best, it could work on the page, one-to-one, -one, and then to a whole lot of people as well. But it doesn't always work that way. David, you've worked in so many theatres. Do you write for them specifically? Yeah, yeah. I think the future of realistic or naturalistic theatre um, 
which I, I write is smaller theatres where the audience can be involved because the old 1,000-seat theatres where the stage for most people is a distant oblong with tiny people moving around in the distance is no longer acceptable in an age where in their own living room they've got a 99-inch television screen three feet from their faces and they're seeing actors, uh, some of the world's best actors in close-up. So I love it now when I'm in a 300 to 400, or 200 to 400 seat theatre where the audience is really involved um, in the drama. I, uh, I, I think the future of drama is in that size theatre. I think you need a big... I was going to say blouse, no, uh, musical to, um, uh, to fill the stage uh, with action and life and music and things. That, that can carry still in an 800-seater or a 1,000-seater if it's big and loud enough and, um, and active enough. But drama, yeah, I love the thought that uh, it's not a big theatre these days. Yes, thank you very much for this wonderful discussion. Um, David, I'm just wondering what you see... Uh, the future is for emerging Australian playwrights and uh, uh, a much more vibrant fringe theatre scene? I, I think it's very tough for young emerging playwrights now. I think our mainly conservative governments have whittled arts funding down uh, progressively over the years um, to the point where most of the bigger theatres now are operating as commercial theatres. The Sydney Theatre Company, the Melbourne Theatre Company, their subsidy back in the 80s was something like 35, 40% of their budget. Now it's down to about 8%. So they virtually have to operate as, uh, as commercial theatres and we're going back in the big theatres, the pattern of the 60s, where they raided the stages of New York and, and, and London, found the latest hits and transplanted them here. Whereas in the uh, 80s and 90s, um, Australian plays were 40% of our main stage. It's a lot less now. There are smaller theatres that are doing fantastic work, like Griffin and lots of small theatres around Australia, but not nearly enough of them, and not nearly enough of the hits and the good writing on those small stages uh, is transferring to larger theatres as it used to. Um, it's, it's a matter of funding, it's a matter of valuing theatre and valuing the arts, which our governments have not been doing. And so it's hard for a career path now. Not that big main stage is the ultimate aim of every writer, you don't want to be doing that. But it's sad to see our larger stages, uh, the content of new Australian work, gradually whittling down, mainly because of financial circumstances. Um, I don't think we have another time for more audience questions, but I might just adapt that one and ask the two of you what you see as the future for emerging poets in Australia. The next, who's oh, wow. the next Maxime Vanieva-Clark? Yeah, I mean, I think I am... There are so many spoken word spaces in Melbourne, so I think it's nice to see. I've kind of been out of that scene for quite a long time now, and occasionally I get an email, you know, kind of group of, you know, young poets in their early 20s saying, will you come and read at this slam that we've started or whatever, and so I'm glad that those spaces are starting to come back, particularly after the pandemic. Um, but, and, and you know, the, the thing with these small theatre spaces and poetry slams are, you know, you can't make art, good art, unless you can afford to fail. 
you know, and when I think about a lot of those early slams, it's like with Omar, oh my gosh, thank God there were less iPhones around then. You know, <laughs> some of the stuff that I was performing is like, ooh would not fly, you know, that's the way that's that you learn and you, <laughs> and you grow, and, you know. Um, and so, yeah, that's my, you know, I'm, ho I'm hopeful and I have heard a lot of brilliant young poets in the last 10 years or so, but, you know, you can't, you can't, <laughs> poetry doesn't buy bread, you know, so it's kind of arts funding and the maintenance of those spaces where you can afford to fail. And it's the pattern of funding. The funding we do get goes overwhelmingly to big companies like the opera, the ballet, the big theatre companies uh, get a huge proportion of the arts budget. A minuscule amount goes to original Australian creativity in, 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 in generating venues that generate new work. If there was a, a tilt in funding towards the generation of new work, new spaces, then there would be real opportunities, uh, much more so than there are now for young emerging writers. Omar, final thoughts on the future for young it's, it's, poets? It's hard to say, but I do think that there's been a huge sea change, like in a positive way since me and Maxine came into the scene. Um, you know, oftentimes we were the only people of colour at poetry events, and, um, and now you see so many spaces where um, young Pacific Islander kids, young uh, Lebanese Australian kids, black Australian kids, um, you know, can come and share their words, share their experiences, and hopefully feel emboldened by doing that, and also by the sense of community. Um, and I think that's, that's really exciting because hopefully um, it goes, uh, maybe, maybe to add on to what I was talking about before, maybe it will go hand in hand with some type of overall political change gradually um, in this country for the better. Because um, when you're disempowered you can, and, and you are deprived of a voice, you can feel so stuck in the mud. But with stuff like poetry, even though it's such a, it's such a fringe form, you know, um, but if it provides that kinetic energy for you to live your life in a different way, then hopefully that feeds into some type of um, political and social change as well. Governments don't mind art or theatre, ballet, opera that was written 200 years ago because it hasn't got political content that's relevant now, but the, the arts tends to be lively at the fringes and it tends to say things about our society are not perfect and conservative governments by and large hate innovative art but they'll fund museum art. And on that note, um, thank you so much for, to all of you for joining us this evening. Thank you to our fantastic writers, our panellists and to the Writers' Festival for having us. That was author Maeve Marsden with David Williamson, Maxine Beniba-Clark and Omar Musa speaking about writing for performance. I'm Cassie McCullough and this has been a special series from the 2022 Sydney Writers' Festival. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.